why would anybody have worried about who Jesus was associating with? I mean, people can be friends with anybody they like, right? Well, that is the case if you're a private citizen. But if you're a public figure, things get a little more complicated. It is true that you and I can be friends with whoever we want to be friends with. But if the governor of Virginia is friends with a shady businessman, this can cause problems. It can result in that governor's downfall. We've just seen this played out. Even if there's lots of evidence that maybe that governor in and of himself has an upright character, when a public figure chooses to be friends with a shady character, well, that reflects badly on a public figure. It calls into question his judgment. And at the heart of being a public figure is that you need to have good judgment. Now, Jesus, he has not been acting like just another person on the street. He's been claiming to be a public figure. He's been claiming to speak on behalf of God. He's been claiming to announce that God was now becoming king in a new way, in the way that he'd promised he always would. So think of it this way. It's a little different, but I think the analogy helps us get at the, the important issue. In our country right now, we've got 21 months left until the next presidential election, November 2016. 21 months out, and already the journalists and the photographers are swarming around the people who may or may not announce that they're going to run for election. Right? This is happening right now in our culture. Everyone wants to know from Hillary, right, what signals are being sent out or from whoever the other candidates might be. Now, remember what we saw a few weeks ago back at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Go back to Mark chapter 1 and look at verse 14. This is Jesus' announcement of His agenda. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And if you write in your Bible, you can just write over the word gospel, the good news. Proclaiming that there's some good news that God's involved with. Something good is happening that God's involved with. And saying the time is fulfilled. Here's the good news. The good news is that this long promise, the time for it has come to pass, and the kingdom is at hand. This thing God's been saying he's going to do is now arriving. So like a presidential candidate, here we find Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, making an announcement about his presidency. But the difference is, It's of the whole cosmos, and it's not a candidacy. He's saying, the king is here. You've been waiting on the king to return, and he's here. Now, in our passage this morning, go to chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. Now, 
go back and look at the beginning of our passage this morning, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. All right, this is very much like Hillary or some other candidate going out and surrounded by news agencies and people wanting to hear her platform. Here's this whole crowd gathering around him, and what is he doing? It says that he's teaching. Now, what does it say he's teaching? It doesn't. It doesn't tell us what his teaching is because Mark has already told us what his teaching is. His teaching is what he said back in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And it's kind of one of those gigs, when it changes, I'll let you know, right? So later on, he begins to teach some, some details about that. But up until now, we know what he's teaching because Mark already told us. What is he's teaching? He's saying, hey guys, the kingdom is at hand. It's here. And he's opening up this mind-boggling thing that God's been promising to do, but it's happening in a way that's catching everybody off guard. So he's having to say it over and over in new ways and different ways. And he's saying this over and over. What is he saying? Good news. Really good news. The king who made everything, and then you, through your sin, mutinied the whole ship against that king. The, the rebellion that's taken place and the evil that has entered creation. And now all of the world is, has been hostage, has been taken hostage and hijacked, being held hostage by evil and death and sin. Guess what? Really good news. The king who was powerful enough to make it all good, he's back. He's back. He's announcing, Jesus is announcing that in him and through him, God has returned to rescue his world. The one true God is now entering into this tragically broken creation and he's confronting this ancient sickness that's crippled the world, including us humans. Jesus is walking by the sea saying, hey guys, the creator God is now launching his plan to recapture the kingdom that's in mutiny, the world. And he's going to sort it all out. And he's going to fill up this world with his glory and with his goodness and with justice and with beauty and with wholeness. The creator is once again taking charge of the world. And the creator is good and he's kind and he's full of life. Now that's good news. So look, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to know what the gospel is. It's just the really good news that the creator has returned and he's taking charge and he's restoring and he's making it the way. Look, what is our creator like? Well, look at a sunset. He's that beautiful. Look at a forest. He's that life-giving. That creator is returning. In all this brokenness that has captured this world, he's fighting it. And he's going to win that battle. Now, going back to my original question, why would anybody have worried about who Jesus was associating with? People can be friends with anybody they like, yes. But when you're positioning yourself as a public figure, and this particular public figure no less, well, now, who you associate with matters. See, Jesus is sending out signals. He's leaving no one in doubt about what the king is like and what his kingdom will be like. He describes himself not only as a king. By the way, when your main message is kingdom, you're the king. 
He not only describes himself as a king, but look what else in verse 17. What it says, Mark chapter 2, verse 17. He also describes himself as what in this verse? Where y'all can answer back. In Mark 2, 17, he not only uses the image of a king, he uses a different image. A physician. That's right. Now that God is finally taking charge of the world, his good but broken, hijacked world, he's doing what to it? What do physicians do? He's healing it. Now, he's already been healing people's broken bodies, right? I mean, as soon as he announced this, that he's, he's the king and he's bringing the kingdom, right away he starts healing, right? In chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, the first major event in Jesus' life, after his baptism and his temptation, he comes out saying, hey, the king is returning. He's taking charge. What does he do? He heals a guy that has demon possession. Will you have a seat, man? You're distracting me. Thanks. Then look in verse 29 to 34. What does he do? A woman who's got fever. So here's the king. What's he doing with fever? Fever's an imposter. Don't you hate it when you get a fever? Other than the fact that you get to skip school. Now in my house growing up, if we had fever and stayed home, we could watch TV. In Janelle's torture chamber of a house growing up, when they, if they were sick enough to be at home, they could not watch TV. Like what kind of sickness is that? <laughs> So Janelle and I, I didn't even know this until we had kids who stayed home. I thought Janelle grew up normal. But then we had kids and they were sick and stayed home. And I was like, oh, turn on a movie for them. And she was like, no, you're sick to your bed. You're like, you're sick, you're punished. (laughs) But how does that work? But thankfully, the kingdom arrives, sorts out Janelle's upbringing, and our kids watch TV when they're sick. Aren't you glad that the king did not make his creation have fever in it? So what does he do when, he, when the king is in the room and there's fever? He's like, oh, no, I didn't make it to work like this. And then in the next story, verses 40 to 45, what do we see? A leper, right? Not a leopard, but somebody with a serious skin disease. And what does the king say? Oh, no. Disease? That's not a part of my creation. That's, a, that's like a, it's like a what's, the, what's the thing called? A parasite. That's an invasion into my creation. And then, not only does he heal people's bodies, but look in verses 13 to in verses 1 to 12 of Mark chapter 2. He amps it up a notch. He heals people's sins. Right? A new kind of healing. Now, We've got to understand something here. When we get to verse 13, Levi was a tax collector. And tax collectors were no more popular in the ancient world than they are today. Actually, they were less popular then, if you can imagine, even less popular. Because at this moment in time, tax collectors were working for the regime that was um, invading Israel. They were either working for the Romans, the hated pagan overlords, or one of the members of Herod's family, the local folks who were in collusion with the overlords. 
And um, the reason that Matthew was sitting at, or Levi, was sitting at a tax booth in Capernaum is because it seems he's working for Herod Antipas. Now, a bit of a history lesson. Those of you who love history, you'll like this bit. The rest of you, just act like you like this. Now, when Herod Antipas's father, whose name was Herod the Great, which is lovely, right? You, you get to pick your last name. Why not pick that one, right? The Great. When Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., okay, the year 4 B.C., he had this large kingdom, and, he, and it was divided between his three sons. Sort of like after um, Alexander the Great, it kind of got divided because there was no clear front runner. So his son Archelaus got Judea. Antipas got Galilee in the north and some bits of the Jordan Valley thrown in. And the third son, Philip, got the part that today we call the Golan Heights extending up into Syria. Now, if you were traveling west from Philip's territory into Antipas's territory, the border was Capernaum. And just like today, we often have to pay a toll for the privilege of crossing a border. You know, when we go to airports, you see your ticket price, right? And then there's the tax for crossing a border. So you had to pay a toll. Now, the situation's even a little more tense because you got to know there are plenty of people alive who could remember when you could cross that area and there was no toll. When it was owned all by the same person. But now that it's owned by three different people, there's lines everywhere, there's new borders everywhere, and every one of these, whoever's in charge wants to get his piece of the pie. So you can imagine what life was like for Levi, who is a Jew, sitting there taking tolls from people that he grew up with, went to elementary school with and high school with, and his parents knew their parents. And he's doing all of this. He's taking their money. Plenty of people could remember when you could travel through Capernaum and not pay anything. Now, we don't know if Levi chose the job. Or if it was simply the only job he could find. Right? You can imagine that, right? We don't know if he approved of Antipas and, and his policies or like most ordinary Jews, he hated them and he resented Antipas. But at the end of the day, Antipas and his brothers were in charge and the Romans were backing them and there wasn't much anybody could do about it. Now, can you imagine what life was like for Levi? Sitting there day after day. Can you imagine the comments? <laughs> the abuse. The resentment. The anger he received. What does it do to a person? To take that into their heart. Day after day. Being told the things you know he was told. And then one day. Jesus walks by. A public figure. Who's announced he's going to sort out all the bad. <laughs> now, now you know why Levi in Caravaggio's painting won't even look up. If this is the guy who's going to sort it all out. <laughs> I know I'm on the wrong side of that equation. Here's Jesus. I mean just, just imagine what if. The North, what if Jeff, right after the Civil War, 
started taking taxes in Elkton for Lincoln, the North. Can you imagine? What I'm trying to get at is we've loved Jesus too long and hated Pharisees too long that we, we read this against the grain of the way we would have interpreted it. You would not have wanted Levi. Do you know what it would do to a person to have to deny their integrity that long? And then to get the abuse on it, wouldn't you be staring down too? And then Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't shout. He doesn't swear. He doesn't grumble. He did something totally unexpected. He said to Levi, follow me. And Levi, we're told, no doubt, with total astonishment on his face, got up and followed him. Wouldn't you have done the same? Perhaps the first time in ages that someone had treated him like a human being instead of a piece of dirt. Here's a physician king. Come to heal the world. And not just our physical ailments, but with Levi, our social ailments. The king, the one and only true God, has entered into his tragically broken creation. And he's confronting the sickness. This is God launching God's kingdom, taking charge of the world once again. He's healing it. He's healing people whose jobs have made them social outcasts. He's healing people who have lived lives that made them social outcasts. And in the passage we looked at last week, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus showed he had the authority to forgive sins. And now he demonstrates that authority in a rather scandalous way by inviting a very sinful person into his inner circle. Levi, the tax collector, do not underestimate his sin. You need to know you would have asked the same question, wouldn't you? What would you have done with the traitor of the South? What would you have done? What would you have wanted to do? A traitor to God? He was living a life that depended on breaking God's law through fraud and treachery. And he's a traitor to God's people, to his own community, the nation of Israel. He's collaborating with the Romans in fleecing his people. And he's a traitor to his community because he's living a life that destroys the cohesion of his community. Wouldn't you have not liked this guy? Wouldn't you have felt like, Jesus, you're messing up now. He was inherently dishonest. He was a corrupt toady of the hated imperial presence. He drained the poor of their livelihood. He had a big house and your house was getting repossessed. Can you see that Jesus' choice of Levi might have bothered some of us too? But don't you love Jesus for it? What a king! What a physician! Jesus' whole ministry was to bring health, not just to the physically sick, but to Israel as a whole. Not just to those who were doing right, but to those who really, really were jerks. But he's more. He's a king, and he's a physician. And get this, he loves to throw parties. Look, there's this fascinating pattern here. When else did Jesus call somebody to follow him and we know their vocation? That's right. It's the only two occasions in the Gospels 
where we're told their vocation and that Jesus called them to follow him. So you're supposed to compare the two. And lo and behold, there's this remarkable pattern. In both situations, Jesus is by the sea. And he's walking along teaching. In both situations, he sees a person at their trade. In both situations, he calls the person to follow him. And in both situations, the person answers the summons in the same way. Wordless obedience. And in both situations, it's followed up by a meal, a party, in which Jesus is the host. Now, you see, Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, like some of the ancient biblical prophets, was a great feast. All that stuff in Isaiah about the day when the Lord comes, we'll have well-aged wine. We'll eat fat, meat with fat in it, off the bone. All those ancient prophecies that showed the coming of the kingdom as a feast, Jesus didn't just use it as a metaphor. Whenever he invited people in, he did it. Now, it's really interesting. In Matthew's gospel, it says that he went to the house of Matthew. For the party. But in Mark's gospel, it's really ambiguous. Did you notice? As he reclined at table in his house. Mark doesn't tell us whose house because, on a literary level, he wants you to forget about whose house and see Jesus as the host. Just like we're going to do this morning. Jesus, the host. Now, I need to make a point of clarification. Jesus came to offer the healing of God's kingdom to people who needed it. And Jesus was determined to treat Levi differently. Not in the way he deserved. Right? But let's be clear. The point is not that God and his kingdom like bad people and want them to stay bad. God loves bad people and wants to heal them and rescue them. That's the point. There are people today who speak as if Jesus simply tells people, I love you, and leaves it at that. That would be like a doctor filling the hospital with sick people and saying, I love you, and then doing nothing for them. That's not a good doctor. When Jesus says, follow me, it's, of course, an incredible affirmation of who we are deep down inside. That's what Caravaggio's getting, picturing. Here's Levi who won't even look up, but Jesus is looking out for him. This wonderful affirmation of who we are deep down. You are a human being. You're made to reflect God's image and God's glory in the world. And Jesus is calling you to do just that in whatever specific way he's made you to do it. In that unrepeatably unique way that you are as a human. But this doesn't mean we can continue to live in the ways we've always lived. On the contrary. What is Jesus' message back in... Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Good news, the kingdom of God is here. Believe it. Oh, that's mind-boggling. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It really is hard to believe that the creator is sorting this thing out. I mean, do you believe that? 
The gospel calls you to believe that. Believe it and what else does it say in Mark 1.15? And repent. See, we've got two hard jobs. The first one is you really have to believe that the creator is sorting it out. And that there will come a day. I love that passage that Martine read, Ezekiel 34. He will feed his people on the mountains. Reading that this morning, I thought about a time when the king, who was a shepherd, looked out at 4,000 people and fed them. And I long for the day when we will sit down with the Lord Christ like they did in flesh, in person, and receive the bread and, and the wine from his hands. Don't you long for that day? Isn't what we're going to do here this morning a real appetizer of that? Our job is to believe the unbelievable. That just as impossible as it was to imagine that God took on flesh the first time and came here, that he will come back. He really, really will. But just as hard as it is to believe that, we also have to repent of all the ways that we're out of sorts with his kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous Christian who was murdered by Hitler, once wrote, when Christ calls a person to follow him, he bids him come and die. Come and die. And for Levi, that death began soon enough. He had to leave that old life behind. But isn't this the point? That the death happens so that new life can grow in its place? When you hear Jesus calling you to follow him and you have to die to some stuff, isn't the good news that if you would die to it, your death will become like manure. It'll become the soil in which life can grow. In which new life can grow. Follow me. You've got to expect when you hear those words from Jesus. It is both an astonishing invitation to life and death. From sickness to health. From death to life. Church of the Lamb. One of your greatest strengths is your close friendships with one another. And your ability to have, to have parties. If, if I know the story right, Dan, didn't you show up at a party at the Napotnik's house and camp in a tent in their yard? And said, I'm going to move to the valley. Do y'all know that? This is one of the great strengths you guys have. Keep doing it. Keep having parties. Let people camp in your front yard. Invite, other, invite them in. Encourage and extend the healing and love and kindness of King Jesus to other people in this community. And welcome them into the transforming party of God's kingdom. Wherever it's needed, go for it. Just keep doing what you've already got inside of you. Keep loving each other and open up the party of your friendship where Christ is in the center of it. 
That's your gift to Elkton. Now go and do it. Follow your king and do it. Let's pray.